I've said it many times before, and I'm sure I will say it again. King David is a complicated guy. A rogue and a king, a hero and a villain by turns. But there's no question, whatever you think of him, that he's been through a lot in his life. As a boy, David was anointed by the prophet Samuel to become the next king of Israel. No pressure, kid. He was taken from his family to serve in the royal army as the king's personal squire, where he proved his martial prowess by killing the giant Goliath in a stroke of luck or genius, depending on how you look at it. But however you look at it, he killed his first man before he was old enough to grow a beard. As David got a little older, King Saul, the closest thing he had to a father anymore, tried to kill him, believing that David had his eyes on the throne. David had to leave home again, chased into the wilderness by the king's soldiers. David had lost his family, his innocence, and his home more than once. And now, at the time of this reading, many years have passed. Saul is no more, and David has fulfilled his mandate to become king. He's married women, fathered children, and conquered nations. But his son, Absalom, in an ill-advised coup d'etat, has been killed in battle. David's son is dead. And in the midst of his grief, David finds that he still has a kingdom to run and a job to do. He'll mourn his son later when he finds the time, just like everything else that he's lost. A reading from 2 Samuel. It was told Joab, the king is weeping and mourning for Absalom. So the victory that day was turned into mourning for all the troops. For the troops heard that day, the king is grieving for his son. The troops stole into the city that day as soldiers steal in, who are ashamed when they flee in battle. The king covered his face, and the king cried with a loud voice, O my son Absalom, O Absalom, my son, my son. Then Joab came into the house to the king and said, Today you have covered with shame the faces of all your officers who have saved your life today and the lives of your sons and your daughters and the lives of your wives and your concubines. For love of those who hate you and for hatred of those who love you. You have made it clear today that the commanders and officers are nothing to you. For I perceive that if Absalom were alive and all of us were dead today, then you would be pleased. So go out at once and speak kindly to your servants. For I swear by the Lord, if you do not go, not a man will stay with you this night. And this will be worse for you than any disaster that has come upon you from your youth until now. Then the king got up and took his seat in the gate. The troops were all told, see, the king is sitting in the gate. 
and all the troops came before the king. Hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. Amen. Please pray with me. Everlasting and loving God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations upon all of our hearts serve to glorify you. May they be in keeping always with the teachings of our Savior Jesus Christ. And may you bring comfort to us in this time, knowing all of the things that we carry. Amen. It was a funny little article that I stumbled across last week, but also filled with pathos. I didn't know if I should laugh or cry. It was called simply, An Ode to All of the Benches That I've Been Dumped On. A bench is a horrible place to be dumped, the author writes matter-of-factly. I myself have been dumped on many, so I know that there are different types of benches you can be dumped on, and each is painful and humiliating in a different way. She goes on to elaborate upon no fewer than seven different varieties of public bench, each of which has been the scene of an unceremonious breakup, carefully weighing the pros and cons of each. She writes about the park bench, a seemingly innocuous locale surrounded by nature, perhaps a place that carries the memory of better days. Though she acknowledges that any emotional outbursts on your part will be witnessed by children on a nearby playground and other less miserable couples who happen to be strolling by. She writes about the bench at the train station, the bench outside the coffee shop and the beer garden bench where you don't have to go far for a drink when all is said and done. Now, the author, a true connoisseur of broken hearts, even considers the bench at the local museum. As well as being the most aesthetically pleasing, she writes, the other person is hoping that the silence and general austereness of the surroundings will stop you from crying hysterically and lying on the floor yelling, please don't leave me. Unluckily for them, they have picked the modern art museum where it is perfectly acceptable to do this, as people will think that you are a piece of performance art. She writes of the school bench, too, the place where the heartache all began. We didn't have any benches at my school when I was a kid. We had recess on a vast, dark pavement, a place devoid of anything to climb on or swing from. It was all suspiciously absent, as if Someone had gone in and systematically erased every trace of warmth. A bench might have been nice. But I can remember without too much effort standing on the faded hopscotch court in the third grade, its yellow paint little more than a memory of brighter days. I don't like you that way, she said. The note I'd written still in her hands before dropping it and running off to play with her friends. I just stood there. There wasn't much to do at recess in those days. I read a book last week that really got its hooks into me. It's a novel by John Darnielle called Universal Harvester. It all takes place in 1990s small town Iowa, where a young man named Jeremy works at the local video store. It's a sleepy premise, 
with Jeremy sitting behind the counter, checking in late VHS tapes and passing the time until the five o'clock surge of customers on their way home from work. But his routine is interrupted by a strange phenomenon. Customers begin to complain of bizarre scenes on the tapes that don't belong there, as if someone had copied over part of the movie with something else. And the scenes themselves are disturbing. Enigmatic snatches of film depicting an empty chair in an old shed, or a woman with a burlap sack covering her face, or footage of people in dirty, threadbare clothes eating trash out of a garbage can on the street. But this initial setup of the book, which is a bit creepy and unsettling, gives way to a much gentler tale about unresolved grief and loss. It's a thread that's shot throughout the book, woven in there so gently that you might miss it if you weren't paying attention. Every scene depicts a palpable absence, as if that absence were a character all its own. You see, Jeremy lost his mother in a tragic car accident when he was only 16 years old. And now, a young adult, he still lives with his father, a good man who's also just trying to get by, trying to move on. Together, they eke out an existence in this little house in Iowa. Every night, they eat dinner together, watch a couple of movies that Jeremy brings home from the video store. Maybe they have a beer. They play out the same comfortable routine every day, the glow of the television casting an eerie light on the old family photographs that hang upon the wall. They don't talk about mom much, but her absence is always there. It's always a presence. At one point we get a glimpse into the father's diary, and it says the things that he can't speak aloud, the things that he can't bring himself to share with his son. It feels dark a lot of the time, he writes. I thought it would clear up and it's eased a little, but it's still dark. So I watch what's left of my life like a security guard on the night shift, checking the locks when I know I don't need to, pacing the perimeter of some place nobody's gonna break into, except that you never know, something could happen. So you keep watch. It's a touching illustration of what it's like, I think, to live with unresolved grief. It's like being on guard against more tragedy or against the things that we don't want to feel. There are other narratives in the book that chase a similar thread of loss. A little girl whose mother runs off to join a cult, never to be seen again. A farmer who watches the familiar world he knows disintegrate into a landscape of strip malls and chain stores, relationships that never really work out in the end. A little video store in the last days before the internet put them all out of business. Homes, businesses, whole decades, all of them gone. But it's the lost people that hurt the most. The ones who died are simply disappeared. In the final chapter of the book, the author says it plain. In most lives, in most places, 
people go missing. I have a bad habit of spending my free time reading things like Universal Harvester or watching glum movies. I have to confess, last month I was on a business trip in Florida, and while my colleagues were hanging out on the beach one afternoon between meetings, I was in my hotel room with the blinds drawn watching Schindler's List. But the book, Universal Harvester, it awoke something in me forced me to realize that I, too, have been living with a lot of grief that I've never really dealt with. Children always rebel against their parents. I did it, too, in subtle ways. I grew my hair too long, wore the wrong clothes, never tucked in my shirt. Absalom, the son of King David, grew his hair out, too. But he took things a lot further. He staged an armed rebellion against his father and the kingdom of Israel, running around in the wilderness with his little army, evading capture by the king. He was more like David than he cared to admit. Anyone reading this story knows that it can't end well. After a climactic battle between Absalom's forces and the royal army, Absalom finds himself being pursued on horseback by David's top lieutenant, a ruthless hound named Joab. Absalom, who grew his hair too long, gets it tangled up in the branches of an oak tree, and he's left hanging there, his legs dangling while his horse races on. And when Joab finds him, he ignores David's orders to take the young man alive. Taking three javelins, he thrusts them one by one into Absalom's chest. In most lives, in most places, people go missing. David is beside himself with grief as any parent would be. He can't eat, he can't sleep. Joab, of course, spins the tale to exonerate himself, and then he chastises David, telling him to get over it for the sake of his men. You've made it clear today that the commanders and officers are nothing to you, Joab berates David. For today, I know that if Absalom were alive and all of us were dead, then you would be pleased. Now get up and do your job. David does what he feels he must. He takes his place on the throne, gets back to work. That relentless agony in his stomach, he shoves it deep into a closet in his heart. He locks it up with the memories of his family left behind when he was just a kid to go and serve the king. He finds room for it next to the ghost of King Saul, his surrogate father who raised him from his youth and then tried to murder him. He puts it up on the highest shelf alongside the sling that killed Goliath, stained with the loss of innocence. It's funny how absence manages to take up so much space in our lives. This is David's grief, a collection of images, the kind that creep into our narrative from time to time, like scenes on a VHS tape that don't belong there. Jeremy, the kid from the video store in the book, he illustrates it best. Another nagging little question lodged like a bit of grape shot in his chest, the author writes. 
It was nothing major, but the place where he stored them all was running out of room. My uh, older brother gave me the book, the novel I've been referring to this morning. We have similar tastes in things. We have a lot of things in common, actually. We grew up together in very close quarters. We did everything together when we were kids. As we got older, that bond only grew stronger. When I was in grad school in my early 20s, I spent nearly every Saturday at his house doing my laundry and watching movies together. It was a routine, a lot like Jeremy and his father's, now that I think about it. It was comfortable, and it meant a lot. And like those two, my brother and I also share a lot of the same grief. Our parents divorced when we were kids, and just when we were leaving the nest and getting out of college, our mother sold the family house. From that point on, there was no place to go back to, no foundation, no center. It was as if someone had torn it all down and built a strip mall in the places we used to play. Years later, as many of you know, our father died. Lung cancer. Never smoked. A lot of people asked me about this stole I'm wearing this morning. It was actually a gift stitched together from my father's old neckties. But I never wear it because I don't really want to think about the fact that he's gone. It's easy enough to pretend that he's still out there on the East Coast, just waiting for his son who's a little too busy to call him. My brother and I share a lot, but I haven't seen him in two years. He still lives in Connecticut. He's not gone, he's just far away. But the distance has left us drifting apart. And I miss him. It's not anyone's fault. Most of the things we lose aren't anyone's fault. Was that little girl to blame, really, for breaking a boy's heart on the playground that day? How could she have known that the disintegrating hopscotch court we stood on was a metaphor for all of the things we would both lose, given enough time? Now, as your pastor, I am well aware of the things, the places, especially the people that many of you have lost. Parents, lovers, children, homes. The church itself is bereaved, too. We've lost beloved pastors. And the church keeps on changing alongside the world we live in. Some of us may find ourselves longing for the way things used to be here, just like I still pine for the video rental stores and arcades of my childhood. I mean, why do you think I still keep going to the Seven Dwarfs Diner? It's the only place that hasn't changed in 30 years. I guess I just want to acknowledge how easy it is to bury our grief, to lock it in a closet where you don't have to think about it and get on with your life. That's something I've been a little too good at. But the things we've lost, their absence, they take up a lot of space. And they have a way of interrupting our story, inserting themselves into the narrative 
unsettling scenes from a memory that we just as soon forget. I saw another article recently that kind of reminded me of an ode to all of the benches I've been dumped on. It was a piece about all of the church bathrooms that the author has cried in. We cover up grief and hope that it will go away, she writes, because our sanctuaries are meant to be pristine and our services are meant to be planned and coordinated, not sloppy with tears 